On Sabbath, I gave a sermonette about Living University. You know, the entire system depends on Internet. It's a marvelous means whereby God's people can increase their knowledge without having to travel to Charlotte. But you have to be very careful with Internet, and especially with email. You have to get addresses exactly right when you want to send a message. Consider the case of an Illinois man who left the snow-filled streets of Chicago for a vacation in Florida. His wife was on a business trip and was planning to meet him there the next day. And when he reached his hotel, he decided to send his wife a quick email. But unable to find the scrap of paper on which he had written her email address, he did his best to type in her address from memory. Unfortunately, he missed one letter and his email was directed instead to an elderly preacher's wife whose husband had died just the day before. And when the grieving widow checked her email, she took one look at the monitor, let out a piercing scream, and fell to the floor in a dead faint. And at the sound, her family rushed into the room, and they saw this note on the screen. Dearest wife, just got checked in. Everything prepared for your arrival tomorrow. P.S. Sure is hot down here. That's my favorite feast joke. I've used that many years. If you've heard me give it before, well, pardon me, but some apparently haven't, so I'm glad you liked it. My wife and I live on what is considered the bloodiest ground in America, in Virginia. The reason is there were over 100,000 casualties in four major Civil War battlefields within a range of 15 miles from our home. Some consider that sacred ground in honor of the brave soldiers who died or were maimed there. This year begins the sesquicentennial of the American Civil War. And Civil War preservation societies today work to reclaim battlefield from commercial and private ownership in tribute to the soldiers, lest we forget. And the reason is they consider that ground sacred ground. Uh, Up near Fredericksburg, they recently reclaimed a farm that was the famous slaughter pen uh, field during the Battle of Fredericksburg. And yesterday, my wife and I stopped (coughs) at the Chattanooga National Cemetery, and on the way in was a sign explaining proper behavior on these hallowed grounds. After the Battle of Gettysburg, A few months later, President Lincoln visited Gettysburg to give an address. A few appropriate words was his commission, became famous as the Gettysburg Address. And this is what part of what he said. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract 
The world will little know, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. What is sacred ground or hallowed ground? What do we mean by that term and what makes ground sacred? And connected to this, what do we mean when we say that a feast site is where God places his name? Have you ever wondered about that? We've heard that term several times during the feast, but what do we mean by that expression? That's what I'm going to cover today in this sermon, entitled Sacred Ground. Sacred Ground. <clears throat> Likely, you heard mention of sacred ground during the 10th anniversary of 9-11. It was a term used for the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where so many died. Following the attacks of 2001, these sites became hallowed ground in tribute to the people who died there. I have a brother-in-law who has worked at the World Trade Center since that time. And connected to that, I heard a couple of radio programs on Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's program called Tapestry, hosted by Mary Hines. And the two programs were called Sacred Ground. And in the episode, she interviewed people who lost loved ones there or were survivors or were workers at the World Trade Center. And one worker, one man who survived, said that the workers there treat the site as sacred ground. There's a subdued noise of construction. There's quieter speaking at this work site out of respect for those who died there. There's not the usual amount of trash blowing about. And yet others who lost loved ones there said, how could that be sacred ground? Right across the street are strip clubs and hawkers selling souvenirs of those towers coming down. How disrespectful. So it's a big battle right now over just what is ground zero. German theologian Rudolf Otto wrote nearly a century ago that there are two kinds of hallowed ground. One, he said, is a place set apart for prayer and meditation. That is an internal thing. It's something that makes time special in your relationship with God. And the other, he said, is a place set apart because it is entirely other. It's a term that's used in the religious world, entirely other, a place where something happened that is almost beyond the realm of human experience and understanding. A term that's been used from the Latin for that experience is called mysterium tremendum, mysterium tremendum, a tremendous mystery, a place of awe and astonishment, even dread and wonder and blankness. The Irish people call these places thin places, thin places. The word sacred, like in sacred places, simply means to make holy or whole. It's a mecca to which people go 
to again feel whole. They feel something special connected with that site. And throughout history, there have been sacred sites. In ancient times, even including biblical history, many cultures considered certain locations special or sacred. Places where the gods would communicate with people. They would come down and be close to people. Sacred trees, sacred waters like pools and rivers, stones, rocks, and mountains, because getting higher towards heaven, up near the clouds. And people built altars in biblical times in certain locations because that's where they met God. Let's go to Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20. The first altar of which we have any account in Scripture was built after a tremendous earth-shaking event. This is after the great flood in the time of Noah. Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered some offerings on the altar. They had survived. The few people who had survived. And he believed that he was closely connected to God. He knows the distinctions between clean and unclean predate Moses by many, many centuries. But he built an altar because it was a place where he was close to God after the flood. The first, This is the first sacrifice since the time of Cain and Abel in chapter 4. And altars were usually built in certain spots connected with religious associations or where God appeared. For example, Abraham, Genesis 12. When God called Abraham, Genesis 12 and verse 7. Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. God had appeared to him in a certain place. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The altar was connected to this special mysterium tremendum. This special sense of awe and wonder of being in God's presence. And this is the first time God appeared to Abraham in Canaan, but not the last. He experienced this mysterium tremendum there. So altars were used as places of sacrifice. Other times they were memorials to remember something special that occurred there. And these altars were usually made of earth, The law of Moses permitted them to be made of earth or unhewn stones. They were not to use tools on them to make an altar. And as time passed, many of these altars were established on high places. When you read about this throughout Scripture, the high places were hills or mountains where altars were established for the worship of not just the true God, but also many of the false gods of the Canaanite nations, the Gentile nations around Israel. 
In Genesis chapter 22, during Abraham, Abraham's great test at Mount Moriah, Genesis 22 and verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Look how he responded respectfully. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will tell you. On one of the mountains, a sacred place. But why? That's what we're discovering in this brief study today. And so verse 9, you are know what happened in the rest of the story, but I want to point out this detail in verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And so this was an altar. Now, something special happened there that people who descend from Abraham still consider special to this very day. The three Abrahamic religions all have a connection to this place because of that story. And Christians understand that as a model of the father's sacrifice of his only son. I mentioned a few minutes ago that there were many high places So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, when it came to the time of Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel, God centralized the worship. Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 1. Because people were doing their own thing. Every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. And there were many independent Places of worship being established throughout the land. Worshiping not just the true God, but to many other foreign gods. Deuteronomy 12.1, these are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days you live on the earth. You will utterly shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess Serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. The green tree was a place to bring success and prosperity, the archaeologists tell us. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images. With fire, you shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. So there was idolatry on these high places. And you shall worship the Lord your God with such things. Sorry, you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all of your tribes. And catch this next phrase. To put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. That's where we get that phrase, the place where God places his name. 
And there you shall take your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, the heath offering, heave offerings of your hand, vowed offerings, freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You see, these high places were Canaanite worship centers. God said, you shall not do it all, verse 8, as we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. See, there's always a danger of people establishing their own religious observances apart from where God is. That is true today, isn't it? For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there shall be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, tithes, heave offerings of your hand, all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters and male and female servants and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance. A passage that we often quote for the Feast of Tabernacles. Because here is something special. It's where God is meeting with his people. Now when we go to 1 Kings chapter 3, even though that law had been given, just before the temple was built in the time of Solomon, we find the Israelites were still worshiping on these high places. 1 Kings 3, verse 1. First Kings 3, verse 1. Now, Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, an alliance. And he married, married Pharaoh's daughter. This was the common practice in the Middle East at that time, to cement alliances, you would marry the princess of the other kingdom. And then he brought her to the city of David, verse 1, until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord that we call the temple, Solomon's temple, and the wall around Jerusalem. And meanwhile, the people sacrificed, catch that, verse 2, at the high places because there was no house built. For the name of the Lord until those days. And so from the time of Moses until the time of Solomon, this vast period of time, 400 years or so, people were no longer worshiping in the central location, but going to commonly used sacred grounds or sites. But, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David, except that, and the writer explains, he loved God except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. It was not an untarnished career, was it, of Solomon? So going on now, verse 4. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon offered 
a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? Not Jerusalem, Gibeon. God tolerated it to this point because the temple was about to be built, starting in chapter 5. But these high places were places where Canaanite religious rites were conducted, and these could easily infiltrate into Israel's worship with a mixing and a blending that's commonly called syncretism, which was a threat to Israel. And there were licentious practices conducted at these pagan altars as well. Well, when you read starting in chapter 5, we're not going to stop, but chapters 5 through 8, Describe the building of the temple in the time of Solomon. So let's go to chapter 9 now. Chapter 9 and verse 1. Chapter 9, 1 Kings, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord in the king's house, and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house. He made it holy ground. But what made it holy ground? Just the location? Just the building? which you have built to my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in the integrity of heart and uprightness to do according to all I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then, if then, I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel Forever, as I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you and your sons at all turn away from me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them in this house, which I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. Remember these words for later in the sermon today. God warned, if you no longer worship me, this house will be desolate. It will experience calamity. And sadly, Solomon's temple was torn down in the time of the Babylonians because Israel forsook God. What made that ground sacred was that God was meeting with his people there 
Yet, despite this warning, Solomon did go astray. 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11 and verse 7. Just two chapters later, verse 7, chapter 11, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the national god of Moab. The abomination of Moab on the hill that's east of Jerusalem. And for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Molech. You know what Molech required? Human sacrifice. And he did likewise, verse 8, for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this and not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. This is what brought down the temple and the passage of the kingdom into two pieces. Isn't that sad? The great Solomon, he knew better. You see, he stopped worshiping God there at the temple and started to worship other gods. And so that central location where God met with his people was no longer the only place. Solomon took it upon himself to go elsewhere as his heart led him. Oh, yes, God was sometimes worshipped on these high places, as I've shown you. But it's not what he wanted. There were high places at Gibeon, Ammon, Baal, Tophet, Bama, Aven. Sometimes they were surrounded by groves, which were carved wooden images to the Asherah goddess. High places were built by Solomon, Jeroboam, Jehoram, Ahaz, Manasseh, the people of Judah, the people of Israel. These are all listed in Scripture. Special priests were ordained for the high places in the time of the later king Jeroboam of the house of Israel. Sacrifices and incense were offered to idols upon these places. Enchantments involving occult and magic and more, as we'll see. And by the time of Ezekiel, there were high places, it says, in all their streets. Like having a a sacred shrine on the corner. And Israel is condemned for building them. 1 Kings 14. And it provoked God. 1 Kings 14, verse 22. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed, more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, places of pagan worship, as the New King James Margin says, sacred pillars and wooden images 
on every high hill and under every green tree. Carved images of goddesses like Astarte. And there were, verse 24, also perverted persons there. Ones practicing sodomy and prostitution in religious rituals. Twenty-four, and there were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. The sacred pillars were standing pillars of wood or stone, and God had forbade Israel back in Deuteronomy from erecting such pillars of wood or stone. The wooden images were these Asherahs, these obscene wooden symbols associated with sexual worship of that Canaanite goddess. And so there was syncretism, again, a blending of the truth with error. I want to read part of the article from the Fawcett Bible Dictionary, High Places. Hebrew word for that is bamoth, bamoth. Archaeological and scientific researches have made it evident that in the varying forms of early religions, And in lands far distant from each other, high places were selected for worship of a sacrificial character. This was so especially among the Moabites. And the three altars built by Abraham at Shechem between Bethel and Ai and Mamre were on heights. Such sites consecrated of old would naturally be resorted to after times as sanctuaries. But the law forbade, as we've already seen, except worship at one national sanctuary. But this inclination to build high places reasserted itself. And there were some Israelite kings who were more tolerant than others. And those who were less tolerant were iconoclasts. They would go in and clean house. And they would destroy these images and break down all the altars on these high places. But not all kings of Israel did this, especially in the house of Israel. There were three time periods when these high places were the most tolerated, in the time of the judges, in the time when the temple was not yet built, and when the Israelite house of Israel broke away from the house of Judah under Jeroboam, and he did not want his people going down to the central location, and so he established places of worship on his two borders with altars and ordains a priesthood for them. Leviticus 17 tells us even more why God did not permit this kind of worship. Leviticus chapter 17, starting in verse 3. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 3. Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp, does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord. The guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from his people, either the death penalty or being banished. And to the end, that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they 
uh, offer in the open field that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of a tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the eternal. But notice the next verse. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons, after whom they've played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And the marginal note of the New King James says, these demons had the form of a goat or a satyr. Goat demons that were prominent in that time period. False gods, false spirits. And as you read the history of Israel, it's interesting that they adopted for themselves a custom that came from the ancient Tyrians, the people of Tyre. They had high priests that were called the Kemarim, Kemarim, meaning ministers of the gods. And the Tyrians used the word Kamili, these black attired ministers, from the Hebrew word kamar, meaning to be black. They wore black robes. Black robes. Even in American history, there were black robes to turn the natives to Christianity, supposedly. And when the high places were established by Jeroboam at Dan and Bethel with calf worship, these high places, there were these black robes. God says, you should have put all this stuff away. This is a provocation to me. He says, it's like a, this worship is like a harlot setting up her tent. Look at 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings 23, starting in verse 7. 2 Kings 23, starting in verse 7. This is the time period of the good king Josiah of Judah. He was one of the rare kings who was an iconoclast. He cleaned house, and he was a young man. He tore down, verse 7, the ritual booths, these houses, where the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image, practicing sodomy and prostitution and religious rituals. And where is this taking place? In the temple. No wonder Josiah was upset. This was a massive reformation. Verse 8, And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah, defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense, from Geba to Beersheba. Also he broke down the high places at the gates that were in the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. Every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Himmon, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech, human burnt sacrifice of children was taking place on these sacred places. It's astonishing. But you can understand now why God 
cleaned house so thoroughly during the captivities, even despite the valiant efforts of kings like Josiah, it never did rid the people of paganism. Many of the kings just winked at the error and let it go on. Others were more diligent. But when you read of these, the central location where God met with his people, in the time of Moses and Aaron, it was the tabernacle. But we find the tabernacle wasn't at Jerusalem. It was at Gilgal when they crossed the Jordan River, first established as headquarters under Joshua. Later it was moved to Shiloh. In the time of David, he finds it at Nob. And then in Solomon's time at Gibeon. But finally, we read in 1 Kings 14, Jerusalem becomes the place where God will meet with his people. And that's when the temple is being built. It has been built, and now we're in the era of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. 1 Kings 14, 21. Of course, the kingdom split during the reign of Rehoboam. Jeroboam took ten of those tribes. 1 Kings 14, 21. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old. He became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. And notice, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus. Finally, Jerusalem becomes the place in the time of Solomon in Rehoboam. God was trying to keep his people on track at a place where the truth was taught and where the people could worship in unison throughout these generations. And people continued to veer off to do their own thing. Sad, isn't it? It's interesting how these lessons are not always learned and people make the same mistakes in modern times. What makes God's altar sacred? Is it the kind of stone that it is or the the structure or the people who operate there? Let's go back to when the tabernacle was first built. In the book of Exodus, chapter 40, and verse 34. Exodus 40, the last chapter of the book of Exodus. What made it sacred? Exodus 40, and verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. The previous chapters talked about all of the finery that went into building this tabernacle. It was a beautiful building. And the most holy place had the Holy of Holies where the altar or the Ark of the Covenant was. And now we're reading of the inauguration of this worship there at the tabernacle. And it says, a cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Very important phrase for the rest of the sermon. Glory of the Lord. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, The children of Israel will go onwards on their journeys. 
Who announced where they went to encamp the next day? Was it Moses? Was it Joshua? Uh, No. It was God. It wasn't even Aaron, the priest. It was God. When that cloud moved, the people packed, struck camp, and they followed. And you'll read in the books of Moses that they marched in an organized fashion. Sets of three tribes each marching in order. Organization. Leadership. Verse 37. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that was taken up. But the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night. Pillar of the cloud, pillar of the fire by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Because that cloud represented God's glory. Now, centuries later, of course, the temple was built in the time of Solomon. And the same thing. First Kings 8. First Kings 8. First Kings 8. Starting in verse 10. See, that cloud was an, what the theologians call an epiphany, an appearance of God. First Kings 8. Starting in verse 10. First Kings 8. 10. And it came to pass... When the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. The temple had been built under Solomon. The priests were there. This is the inauguration of the great temple. Solomon gives a very impressive speech to the people and a prayer to God during his time. The cloud filled the house of the Lord. There it is again so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The Jews gave a term to the glory of the Lord. Though the term never occurs in the Bible, it's based on some words that are. They called it the Shekinah or the Shekinah glory, depending on which Jew you talk to by their pronunciation. Shekinah or Shekinah glory. From the Hebrew words dwell, Shekin, or tabernacle, Mishkan. And when the glory of the Lord was above that building, it gave the people assurance that God was with them and it gave them an incentive to be faithful. The Shekinah glory filled the temple. This is what made it holy ground. The glory of the Lord. And that glory of the Lord apparently was there through these hundreds of years until the time of the prophet Ezekiel. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel is already in captivity, captivity of the house of Judah. And though he gives prophecies to the house of Israel, they were never fulfilled as part of our great work today. But we ought to notice something about what happened during the time of Ezekiel in the temple. What God said was the reason why the people of Judea 
were being hauled away into captivity. Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 6. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again and you will see greater abominations. God warned them, keep it up, continue to practice idolatry right here in the altar. You're going to force me to leave. Your sins have separated between me and you is what God said to the prophet Isaiah. And then I'll go to chapter 10 and verse 4. Sure enough, it happens. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub in the altar, in the Holy of Holies, and it paused over the threshold of the temple, the door going into the temple itself. And the house was filled with the glory, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory, which ordinarily was in the Holy of Holies, but now it's outside in the court. It's on the move, and that's not where it stops. Verse 19. Verse 19. And the cherubim, these were the angels that moved God's portable throne, lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And when they went out, the wheels were beside them. And they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. It moved again from the threshold to the east gate. East gate. And then chapter 11, in verse 22. 11, 22. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. What mountain is on the east side of the city? Hmm. Well, the rabbis like Yarki and Kimchi and others debated that, and they said there could only be one. It's called the Mount of Olives. And so the glory of the Lord kept moving, and now it's on a mountain where it overlooks the city. It was on the move to give either time for the people to repent or for God to bring down his judgments upon these people. And that's not where it stops either. Why? We find that God's glory left earth entirely. And he tells us why in the book of Hosea, chapter 5, verse 15. Chapter 5, 15. Hosea 5, 15. I will return again to my place, the third heaven, till they acknowledge their offense. That is, become guilty or bear punishment. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. God says he's going to return to heaven until people recognize what they've done wrong and repent. God cannot dwell in an unclean environment of sin like Israel was practicing at that time. And so the Shekinah glory moves from the east gate to the Mount of Olives, altogether abandoning the temple. 
The Mount of Olives is beyond the Kidron Valley. It's a north-south hill rising 2,700 feet. You heard Mr. Meredith refer to climbing that this week. My wife and I have done the same thing. Think about the significance of the Mount of Olives in Bible history. How is it connected to Jesus? Did Jesus have any special connection with the Mount of Olives? Ah, he actually gave a prophecy on that mountain overlooking Jerusalem, weeping. What's that prophecy called? It's a great prophecy. You all know it. We turn to it during this feast. It's called the Olivet Prophecy. This is that same hill from which the glory of the Lord departed back to heaven. What else happened there? Remember when Jesus ascended to heaven before the eyes of the apostles in a cloud? Where did that take place? All of it. And the other day, Mr. Ames read to us the prophecy of Zechariah. When Jesus comes back, where will his feet land? Where does he touch down? The Mount of Olives, and the Mount shall cleave in two. There's something special about that Mount for God's coming and going. God did come back to earth, but this time it wasn't with a great Shekinah glory cloud, but in the form of a human being. John chapter 1. In verse 14, oh, it contained the glory of God, but it didn't shine like they saw in the tabernacle and in the temple. John chapter 1 and verse 14. This is that famous passage about the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 1. And now verse 14. And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his what? His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you read Greek, I don't, but I read books that tell me from people that do read it, that the word for dwelt is a Greek word for tent. That's the Greek word used for the Greek Old Testament, called the Septuagint, for the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the time of Moses and Aaron. And so when Jesus came in the flesh, he tabernacled among us. What are we observing this week? Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Feast of dwellings, where God dwells. Go to John chapter 4. During his ministry, he confronts a woman of Samaria. And the Samaritans were a separate group further north of Jerusalem. And they had their own altar, their high place, Mount Gerizim. And this lady, this woman of Samaria, meets Jesus at the well. John 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So which is it? Samaria 
or Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. I mean, it doesn't have to be one geographic location. What's, what's happening? What's changing? What's going back to the original intent? Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Because God is not limited by time and space. And so we worship him in spirit and truth. And it's such people that God wants to worship him. You mean it doesn't have to be a certain location? The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he tells us all things. You see, the intent of having a central place was because that's where God dwelt for his people to worship him in spirit and in truth. But when the people of Judea rejected Jesus towards the end of his ministry, Matthew 23 He pronounces judgment on the building which had become only a sacred shrine because it was rejecting him. The priesthood was rejecting him. The people will eventually cry out, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Matthew 23, verse 37. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. And stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Catch this. See? Your house is left to you desolate. Remember that warning that God gave that we read earlier? First Kings 9. He's pronounced calamity upon that building if they turn their backs on worshiping him. Indeed, we have shown he was the God of the Old Testament. It's the same God. He pronounces judgment upon that temple. And you know, in 70 A.D., that temple came tumbling down through the attack of the Romans. God departed. He left. He was no longer there. When we come to the book of Acts, the beginning of the New Testament ministry, in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 11, Stephen, who had been chosen as one of the servants that we later call deacons, gives a, a defense for what he had been teaching. And he's accused of attacking the temple. Acts 6, verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, verse 12, and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council of the Sanhedrin. 
They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Remember how Jesus had said, Woe to you, for you don't know what's coming. He was prophesying of that destruction in 70 A.D. under the Romans. We have heard him say, verse 14, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the councils looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Stephen was only preaching what Jesus had said. He pronounced judgment upon that place. But they were corrupting what Jesus had also said, because Jesus had talked in another way. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Talking about his body. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth before he was resurrected. But this is thrown at Stephen. You're a threat to this building. You're a threat to this sacred place by what you're preaching. And then he gives this defense in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, and he tries to make the point that it doesn't matter which location it is. What matters is where God is. And so in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. You mean God dwelt with Abraham in that foreign land, Mesopotamia, between the two rivers? That wasn't Jerusalem, was it? Chapter 7 and verse 30. Chapter 7, verse 30. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush, talking about Moses. Where? Jerusalem? No. In the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Was it that particular bush that made it holy? That particular hill? Sinai Peninsula? What made it holy? God's presence. God was there with. Moses. And so Stephen makes the point, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, to Moses in Sinai. He's going to dwell with people who worship him in spirit and in truth, wherever that might be. Verse 48, And when Solomon built the temple... He was not under any illusion that God was going to be confined to a box. Acts 7, verse 48. Solomon built him a house, verse 47. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? What building can confine me to one spot on earth, says the Lord? Or what's the place of my rest? Has... My hand not made all these things. You see, 
God is not the encased God, the housed God, the imprisoned deity, the confined spirit. That's the center of every pagan religion on earth. Man wants a God he can control, who's in a box, but humans cannot encase God. And Solomon knew that when he built the temple. In his prayer, he says to God, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much lasts this temple which my hands have built? You see, God dwells where his people are. These kind of people. Isaiah 66. See, every pagan religion establishes shrines that people frequent thinking that that is the place, the one and only. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Whether there's a right spirit there or not, whether there's a God's people there or not. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house you'll build me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made. And all those things exist, says the Lord. Verse 2, Isaiah 66. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's where God dwells. With people who trust Him, who love Him, who serve Him, who are humble, who are teachable, who do not practice syncretism, who are loyal to Him. Stephen indeed did have respect for the temple, but he was trying to explain God is not limited to that building. And since Jesus' death, He's not there. A veil, that temple was torn from top to bottom. The place where he reveals himself is holy. But now I want to ask you, where on earth does God dwell today? Some people point to Jerusalem. Is that correct? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6. Does God have a place where he dwells today? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you, you brethren, are the temple of a living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, walk among them, be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be you separate, says the Lord, and don't touch the unclean, and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Where does God dwell? He dwells. With his people, the church of God, that is here called the temple of the living God. 
By his spirit, he even now lives in human bodies of those who receive him. When Christ lives in us, Paul says that is the hope of glory. The hope of glory. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We're beholding the glory of the Lord? Yeah, you see, it's here. It's in every one of those baptized people out there. This is the house of God. This is where God dwells. It's where He has placed His name. There's an ever-growing glory as more come into this church. And so today, God dwells among His people. But we know there's a millennium to come. Over in Malachi chapter 3, Mr. Ames the other day explained that there's going to be a millennial temple. The last book of the Old Testament talks about his coming to that temple. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. That was John the Baptist in Jesus' first coming. And he will prepare the way before me in the Lord whom you seek, Malachi 3.1, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. And that's a messianic term of Jesus. In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. Verse 2 of Malachi 3, but who can endure a day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. In the millennium, Christ is going to work with national Israel on a physical level. There will be a temple. The priests will be reestablished. They're going to be refined as purifier of silver. He's going to purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold, verse 3, and silver, that they may offer the Lord to the Lord an offering of righteousness. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And there are nine chapters of Ezekiel that describes this temple. Mr. Ames touched on it lightly, but I want to go to chapter 43. Ezekiel 43. He suddenly comes to his temple. In Ezekiel 43, verse 1, afterward he brought me to the gate. The gate that faces towards the east. Remember how the Shekinah glory left the temple? From the Holy of Holies to the threshold to the gate on the east side of Jerusalem to Mount Olivet and then to heaven. Successive steps. But when he comes back, it's reversed. The gate towards the east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel, verse 2, came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by the way of the gate which faces 
toward the east. And as you flip over to 48, chapter 48, remember Mr. Ames' verse he quoted at the end of Ezekiel, the last verse of Ezekiel. When the Lord is in his temple, the Lord is there. Yahweh Shammah. Ezekiel 48, 35. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. It really will be the holy city then because God is there. And that famous passage from Habakkuk comes to mind. If you can find that little book in the Minor Prophets, it's not one that we often turn to. But in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, a well-known millennial passage that we often read at the Feast of Tabernacles, but notice one phrase, Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. No, it says, it shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Why? Because in the millennium, the glory of the Lord in the people of God, the church of God, will truly be worldwide. The church of God, worldwide. It will fill the earth. And when we go beyond the millennium, to the age beyond that, the second resurrection and the ages of the ages, Revelation, our last verse, Revelation 21.3, Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Revelation 21.3 God himself shall be with them and be their God. The tabernacle of God is with all the redeemed from that time forward. So this brief study has taught us some important lessons. One is, what makes any earthly location is God's presence. Where God dwells, even temporarily, that is where he communicates with his worshipers. That is where he places his name. And his name represents his person. It's where God dwells. Two, today the temple of God is the church of God. And by faith we trust that God works through the church to set aside certain locations where God will meet with his people. And they can vary from year to year. And as we saw in our study, the location can change from one period to another, even in the time of the tabernacle. What matters is where God and his people come together in unity, in fellowship. Three, we need to avoid thinking of Jerusalem as intrinsically holy. It's not presently the holy city. God's not in an ark in the, of the covenant, in a temple any longer there. The only place where God might be there 
as if a church of God should assemble there for a Sabbath or holy day. And you never know, we may end up with a feast site there yet someday. And nor should we encourage and finance Jews who wish to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem, as some churches seem to do. We know prophecy says they will establish an altar there, but it's not the church's commission to encourage that. Our commission is to do what? Preach the gospel. For Christ will suddenly come to his temple in the millennium, and as long as he's in the temple, it is sacred ground. In five, we learned that here in Chattanooga, we are assembled where God has placed his name this year, along with our other locations around the year, around the world, rather. And next year, it could be another location where you go, where you assemble with God's people. The site is not sacred except when God's people assemble there. The house of God, the temple of God. And we made a pilgrimage to get to sacred ground, didn't we? We traveled here. We made an effort to come where God is meeting with his people. It's an awesome sense that we have at the feast that we may not have any other time of the year, that we look out at a vast audience, our home churches are smaller by comparison, but we realize this is where God is. Among all these smiling faces and these little children, we've come to the right place. For this time period, this is sacred ground. While we are in commanded assembly, doesn't the Bible refer to this as a holy convocation? A holy convocation, commanded assembly. I have been a festival site coordinator over the years. You know what I noticed? After the last great day, when God's people started to leave, that hotel, that meeting place changed in atmosphere. Because God's spirit was leaving. It turned into just an ordinary resort. It no longer was the place where God was meeting with his people. The atmosphere changed. The temple of God will assemble again the following weekly Sabbaths and holy days throughout this next year. Be sure to assemble on sacred ground where God places his name every Sabbath or holy day.